the Missional Life Podcast, inspiring kingdom-minded believers around the world to live the mission of God in their lives. All right. Welcome back to the Mission Life Podcast. Today, we have Amy Van Dyke on the show. Amy is the lead curator of art and exhibitions at the Museum of the Bible. She's helped facilitate over 50 exhibitions around the world and is here to share about how the museum is helping to present the truths of the Bible, as well as how God has used her and her giftings in that mission. Amy, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So, Amy, to start off with, can you tell us a little about the beginnings of the museum? Where is it? When did it open? And maybe who helped curate and fund kind of the museum startup? So, the museum in DC, that building, proper had been there since 2017 and it was a process of building for a few years prior to that and what we were doing in that process was creating traveling exhibitions that went all over the world and around the country to not only bring awareness to the story of what we were trying to say with the history of the bible and its impact but also to raise money and funding for the building that was eventually built in dc so while the museum itself has been there since 2017 to now, we were working on this process for a few years before that to get all of that going. And even before it became a thought of having a permanent museum, we were creating all of these traveling exhibits. So it's been kind of a process. Yeah. Awesome. Who originally had the idea and who was the mindset behind creating such a museum? So there were a couple of people involved at the very beginning, this idea of collecting important pieces in the Bible's history and then creating a museum for those was, was the idea of, of a couple of people early on. And then they involved, the, they reached out to the Green family, the owners of Hobby Lobby, as investors to say, hey, we'd love to do this project. Would you be interested? And the Greens were like, well, that sounds like a really great idea. And they started purchasing objects that would eventually go into this museum. And then after a while, that original person dropped out and then the Greens decided to keep this project going. And so they kind of took up the mantle at that point and continued it. And the first exhibition that was done with this collection, this new collection, was in 2011 for the anniversary of the King James Bible. And that was first put on in Oklahoma City at the Museum of Art here in town. And then that traveled around the country to six different cities over the next five years. So that's kind of how it started. And there's been a number of people and investors involved along the way. But the founders were the Green family, or the initial principal investors were the Green family, the owners of Hobby Lobby. And then when the museum was built later, well, before it was built, actually, we became our own entity. So the Museum of the Bible is actually its own nonprofit entity. The, the Greens are still one of our largest benefactors, thankfully, and they help keep us going. But we are a donation-based, completely private museum now uh, with our own nonprofit status. So we, we, are, we have a board and the whole process now. So again, that was another process of transition over the past number of years. Hmm. Was it hard to get a museum started, especially kind of in D.C., where it seems like, you know, there's a pretty big secular feeling to kind of come in and say, hey, we want to display a bunch of, you know, biblical things, biblical items in our nation's capital. Was it challenging or was it just, hey, this is the Lord and it was just a smooth process? Well, I don't think anything is a smooth <laughs> process. <laughs> right. 
ever. But uh, this, things did work out for this location in particular. And I know that the Greens, along with some of their um, advisors, were looking at different cities as potential cities to put this museum. So D.C. wasn't the in, the only idea. They were looking at some other cities, like perhaps Dallas or L.A. or you know, somewhere else. But D.C. was on that list, too, and they did surveys of people to say, hey, if you were to attend this museum, which city would you be more likely to visit to go see this museum? And overwhelmingly, the answers were D.C. So it kind of, that was steering people toward D.C. It's a very museum-driven town. There's lots of things to see there. And so that made sense. And then when the process started for looking for a building and purchasing a building and renovations. Of course, we had to go through the city with a lot of their, their permits. DC is very strict on a lot of their permits for the surrounding structures and the buildings themselves. So that was quite a process to do. But the, the city was really accommodating. They were very helpful. The, the mayor came to our opening. And um, because it is such a museum-driven town, there's a museum for about anything. There's a postage museum. There's a spy museum. There's a you know, there's a museum for anything. So, you know, we fit right in with a lot of the cultural milieu that's in that city. And it's been, it's been positive so far. We're happy with where we are, with the building that we have, and the response has been very good. So we're happy to be there. Uh, I'd say the hard thing about being in D.C. versus, say, Dallas or somewhere is that because there's so many museums, we're one in many and many of those museums are Smithsonian's, for example. They're government-funded. They're federally funded. They're free to attend, so you don't have to pay an admission fee. Whereas our museum is one of two, I think, in the whole city that is private, and you have to pay for admission. The Spy Museum is another one. Hmm. And, you know, Spy Museums is that's a really great museum anyway. So we're, we, we do have that difficulty that we are surrounded by so many free options and there's so many things to see that people just don't have time to go see everything you know so that's been a little bit of a challenge but overwhelmingly positive response so far so for listeners for us what should we come see what are some of your favorite things there at the museum of the bible what are some of the top exhibits there at the museum that's a really hard question. <laughs> sure. I get asked all the time, what is, what's your favorite object? What's your favorite thing? And there's, there's so many for different reasons. And of course, if you were to ask different people at the museum, you'd get different answers. But I would say our, our number one, our number one attraction at the museum has been our Hebrew Bible experience. It's a walkthrough digital experience that doesn't have artifacts, but it tells you, it walks you through the history of the Hebrew Bible. So the Old Testament and the story of the people and the formation of the stories and uh, their journey back to Israel. And that's all done in a way that's very kind of Disney-esque in a way. You walk from room to room and it tells you different parts of the story in a very artistic way. That particular attraction has won awards and that continues to be our top number one attraction. It's about a 30-minute walkthrough. So I always like to take people to that. So that's really quite amazing. And then, of course, my other favorite themes would be on our impact of the Bible floor. So we have three permanent floors 
that talk about the history, the impact, and the stories of the Bible. And on the impact floor, we have a, group, a section in there about music and how the Bible has impacted music. You can walk in this little pod and it plays the song and it shows you the lyrics and it shows you where that's found in the Bible as well, which is really quite fun. But there's just, there's so much to see there and uh, not enough time in the day to go see it. You can learn all about the history of the Bible from the earliest writings and stories to today. You can look at the impact of the Bible and how it's um, impacted different parts of our culture that you may not have even realized like healthcare, calendars, criminal justice, work, government, all of those things. One of my other, okay, okay, so here's one. One of my other favorite things that we talk about at the museum, which might be close to your hearts as well, because I looked at your website, is we have one gallery on the history of the Bible floor that is completely dedicated to current Bible translation and the history of Bible translation. So it's a large circular gallery with bookshelves and in that gallery are placeholders for every language in the world. And when a Bible is translated into that language, we take the placeholder off the shelf and we put a real Bible back on, the, on display. So it's a real-time visual of where we are in global Bible translation, and it changes wow. every few months. I go there myself and add Bibles to the shelves as it's being done. In fact, last week I was just there and we, we received 85 new Bibles. Wow. So you can imagine how many are being translated currently and how many are in process right now. So that's a really amazing visual to walk into this giant room and then see it changing every time you go. Wow, just hearing that, like I get the chills thinking of that, how the word says that every nation and tongue will say Jesus is Lord and hearing that is so exciting. Yes, the, the entire gallery is funded and sponsored by a group called Illumination. And it's a, that's an umbrella term for a bunch of different translation companies and Bible societies that have all joined forces to make this possible. So their goal is to have the Bible accessible, a portion of the Bible accessible to everyone in the world in a language they understand by 2033 which is a lofty goal. I mean, that's 10 years from now. But by but they're saying not every language will have a full translation by then, but a portion of it, likely the Gospels or something, would be in a language that they could at least understand. Mm. Maybe not their own dialect, but something by 2033. So that's what we're working toward. They're working toward, we're just showing the visual progress of their group as they go. Mm. Wow, that's amazing. Does AI, has that made a big impact on speeding up that process as well with the translations? Has that been a huge contributor, to, you know, technology-wise with that lofty goal of 2033? Digital technology, absolutely. I'm not as updated on the AI side of it. I think that does help, but there's so many nuances with dialects and some of these really smaller languages that AI I don't know how well it would work, but what is helpful is the introduction of audio Bibles and digital Bibles that can be developed and spread very quickly. So rather than a print translation, which would take 30, 40 years to produce, because when you think about it, if you're going to a tribe in a, an isolated place, 
they may not have a written system for their language. So a missionary a translator goes in, has to first create a written system, then translate Bible into that system, then print it, then teach everybody to read it. I mean, that's a 30, 40 year process. Whereas now you can create a translation of the Bible in a spoken word audibly and provide that to the people through means of, say, an MP3 player with a solar panel charged device, right? And you can then get the Bible to people faster, much, much faster than any other way. So, it, and they partnered with U version. So every new Bible that does get translated and printed automatically goes onto U version as well for free. So there's, it's much faster than it used to be. Wow. It's amazing. Absolutely. So we asked what's in there, uh, but as, cu- as a curator, what is something that you would love to bring into, uh, like what would be your holy grail, so to speak, of bringing into the Museum of the Bible that would just tick all the boxes for you personally? Well, of course, there are there are the amazing pieces of history that we would love to include, such as say, the full Gutenberg Bible, for example. You know, we have sections, we have pages, and we have uh, like a second edition of sort Bible printed on the Gutenberg press by his apprentices, those that took over his press later. But we don't have the actual first printing of a full two-volume first edition Gutenberg, right? So that would be like a holy grail if we could get that. There are not that many in the world in great condition. And so that would be something I think that would be a big moment to bring into the museum. We don't know when or if that will happen, but that's one of those. And of course, things like as archaeological discoveries are made, there you know you don't know what's out there still. There's there's been so much discovered in the last hundred years related to the Bible and its history and its its written form. And what if something is found that's just completely unbelievable? You know, a first witness account of the New Testament book. Who knows? So those would be amazing. But when or if that happens, we don't know. As for me personally, being an art curator, that's where my love and passion is. Of course, I would love to have some more regular rotations of art that shows people's interpretations of biblical stories from different time periods, different parts of the world, different perspectives. Because, you know, the Bible, when if God says he came for all people all over the world, then God can look like and be like anyone. And we see this shown regionally throughout history around the world that in one part of the world, God, Jesus, Moses, you name it, the stories look regionally distinct. They look like the people around them because that was familiar, because that made sense. You go to another part of the world, it looks different. And then I love to show that difference and that diversity and that interest in the familial God. God is familiar and he is known to everyone in, in a way that they understand. But then also to show uh, how, how artists read this text and fill in the gaps. That's something I think is neat. The Bible is very full, obviously, but it's not, it doesn't tell us everything. You know, we don't know exactly what played out in these stories like you would watch on a movie or you'd read in a novel or look at a painting and so an artist fills in those 
holes and fills in those gaps. And sometimes they do it in different ways. And so I'd, I'd love to have more chance to show some of those ways that artists have acted as interpreters, educators of the Bible throughout history. So those are things that we're working, that I'm working toward. And of course, we have a team of curators that have different areas of expertise, and each of them wants to show important moments in history and important things for our, our audiences. So it's a robust staff that we have telling all of these stories. Wow. That sounds so amazing and interesting. I want to go there, but we also have two kids. We have an eight-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. So what is there for, for children to learn there at the Museum of the Bible? We are a very interactive museum, actually. Mm. So it's great for family. We have a section on the first floor that's actually a children's area that if they need to go run around and <laughs> scream and yell and hit things, you know, this is perfect because, you know, walking through a museum for hours is going to be hard on a three-year-old and a eight-year-old, right? So they can go in there and they can push the columns like Samson. They can go play a game with Daniel and the lion's den. They can climb on a on a play thing. So there's definitely that room, which teaches them something, but also lets them run around a little bit. And then we have things like that Hebrew Bible walkthrough I told you about. It's really engaging for young people. We have screens, technology, things you can touch, things you can play around with and manipulate and learn through tactile means, which is really helpful for children. So you can turn wheels, you can open doors, you can look at screens, you can hear things and see things, which is very helpful. And then we also have a little mini ride of sorts. So it's, you know, we're one of the only museums I know of that has like a ride that you can go on. And it's one of those that you stand on and the floor moves as you kind of fly around and, and look at things. So there's quite a bit that engages families and young children throughout the museum. And that was our goal. When it was developed, we many of our traveling shows that we did before we opened were kind of a testing ground for mm -hmm. things that might work for different learning styles, different families. We do we do scavenger hunts. We have educational programs that are really robust and wonderful for K through twelve. You can go and talk to a scribe about what he does. You can go and talk about archaeology. You can you can have a class with a teacher which is really wonderful. So all of those things that we tested beforehand were now seen live out in the museum to positive effect. And we're constantly adding more and reviewing what we've done to make sure it's working and, and all of that. So children are very engaged. Now it is a long day and there's a lot to see, so they do get tired, but it's very engaging for families. Yeah, that was my question. How, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot there. Can you do it in a day? Does it take a couple of days? You know, at the average person's pace, how long does it take to get through the museum? Well, you wouldn't, I don't think you could read everything in a day. If sure. you were gone, if you were one of those that wanted to read everything, do everything, I don't think you could do it in a day. But if you're one that, you know, walks through and gets the gist of things, then yeah, I think you could do it in a day. But we've definitely had people leave comments that say, hey, I budgeted two hours for this and I stayed for five. Or I budgeted four hours and I stayed a whole day and I'm coming back tomorrow. So I think mm -hmm. it, people underestimate the amount of time they want to spend in the museum because it is so engaging. And uh, that's a good sign, I think, that people want to come back. And it does change often. We have temporary exhibitions that change every few months. So there's always something new for you to come and see. Awesome. Wow. I'm sure it, it's very hard to work with a museum that's of such 
high quality. How did you come to work there? Tell us some of your story, because I know it's part of your mission as you know what God has anointed you to do. And so we'd love to hear a little bit how God had brought you and your story together with the Museum of the Bible. It is kind of a funny story, actually. And, you know, to, to clarify, like the museum itself is a cultural history museum, right? We're not a, we're not a, a church. We're not creating a, a missional or a theological statement with what we're saying. But we do want to engage all people with the transformative power of the Bible. That's our mission statement, right? But everyone that works here comes at it from a different place and they come with a different purpose. And, and for me personally, I grew up a pastor's kid. My dad was a Baptist preacher for 20 years and we planted churches and all of those things. And so for me, I have a real heart for missions and I have a real heart for sharing the gospel. So personally, I think it's wonderful that I get to tell these stories of people who have used the Bible to impact their community and the world. And I get to share the amazing breadth of the Bible's history, even beyond what I learned growing up. I have learned so much from my colleagues who come from different backgrounds than me. And to see just how rich the Bible's history is and how God has woven that all together has really strengthened and deepened my faith in a way that I didn't expect. And that's what I hope people get from the museum as well, that regardless of your background and where you come from, you can learn something that you didn't know before, and it can only enrich the faith that you came with. We're not telling you what to believe. We're enriching things for you so you can make a better decision. So all that to say, you know, my personal story is that I, as I said, I was a preacher's daughter for 20 years, right? I became a teacher. So I have a background in art history and education. But of course, art history is like the number one least use jobs so the internet says or something like that so you have to make money somehow <laughs> so with an art history degree i decided to go into education and teach so i was a teacher for six years i taught anything from third grade to college and kind of settled in the junior high high school area for a while and i taught art history world history not studio art all of those things i developed a curriculum for a christian private school as well, which was really fun. That took me about four years to get that up and running. But then after, you know, the, the six years, you know, teaching is it's very rewarding, but it's also really exhausting. And there was a point where I was like, okay, I might want to do something else. I kind of missed museum work because I had worked at museums prior. And out of the blue, one day I get an email from my mother who she and my dad had been at a pastor's conference. And sat at the same table as the current president of the Museum of the Bible before it was Museum of the Bible. It was a traveling private collection at the time. And he was there at that pastor's conference to raise awareness for what was what they were doing, who they are, and that they're raising money for this museum, right? So they're sitting next to him, and my mom, being a mom, starts talking about her daughter, who's an art mm -hmm. historian and lives in Oklahoma, which is where this was based at the time, and all of these things. And so this man just gave my mom his card and said, Hey, well, we're hiring. Have her call me. <laughs> and so my mom sent me this email and says, I don't know if you're interested at all, but I met this guy and here's his card. You can contact him if you want to. So I did and went and talked with them and had heard nothing about this, didn't know what it was or anything like that. But he decided he wanted to hire me. He didn't know for what yet. I didn't have a job 
description, a title, anything. And I decided to give it a chance. And I told myself, I said, I'll give it a year. And if it doesn't work out, I can always go back to teaching, right? I know nothing about this thing, but I'll give it a shot. And that was 11 years ago. So I've been there now 11 years. It's just a really long time and it's been rewarding. It's constantly changing and growing. And I have the privilege of having a job that is, you know, has a mission that's close to my heart for one. But I'm a lifelong learner too. So I get paid to learn and teach others with the most amazing props ever, which is the artifacts, you know, real historical things. So in a way I still get to teach and I still get to learn and I still get to share this passion that I have in this way, which there's no other job like that for me out there. I think that's perfect. That's amazing. It's amazing that God just took something that you were passionate about and, you know, some of the things that you had education in and kind of spun it together mm-hmm. and, you know, perfectly positioned you for that and gave kind of a divine appointment. It's just neat how God brings all that together and yeah. just places, you know, yeah. places the right thing at the right, the right person at the right time at the right place. And just, wow. Amazing. Yeah. Absolutely. And when I started, it was in a, in a nondescript warehouse and there were seven people working here. And like I said, I didn't have a job title or a description. And as we grew, you know, we, those of us that were here, we kind of left off some of the things we didn't want to do anymore. So like, I don't have to load trucks anymore, which is nice. And eventually, you know, I, I ended up in the position I'm in now and it's just a blessing to be able to do that. As we close, what is one of the biggest things that you feel like you've learned about God and he's revealed to you personally, being in this position through these years of just some, coming across different artifacts? What are, one or two things that God has spoken to you and just ministered to you and your heart and really built your faith through this experience? I would say something that has really humbled me in learning and, and being here is understanding that no one has it 100% figured out. Mm-hmm. You know, there are certainly essentials to our faith that we recognize and adhere to, and the Bible is true, but, you know, the details of so many things, the Bible is just not completely 100% clear on. So we have to interpret, we have to use our best judgment in that. And that not everyone has it 100% figured out. So being able to sit in a room at a table in a conversation with people that may have differing opinions than me, but all having a respectable conversation about it has been so wonderful and healthy and humbling to me to be able to do that. They listen to my point of view and I can listen to theirs. And we can agree on the essentials of the faith and we can discuss the ones that are a little more fuzzy, you know. And I think that's been incredibly humbling and very, um, as I said before, it deepened my own faith to be able to look at how the Bible has survived throughout history, wars, cultures, changes, everything, persecution. It's been, people have tried to stamp this out forever, right? And it still rises. And there's something to that. You can't ignore that. And so the breadth and the richness of it all is completely humbling. I'd say that certainly at the top for sure. And then the second thing I think in in being here that has 
been exciting to me is understanding how much is still yet to be discovered. We don't, we don't know it all. We haven't found it all. And, you know, personally, I think that God holds some things back from us to be revealed at the right time. Mm. Now, that's just my personal thought. But, you know, things get seem to be discovered at a time that it's best to be discovered. And I think there are still things out there, biblical artifacts, that can attest to the Bible's truth that perhaps haven't been found yet. And I think God has a timing for those things. And it's exciting to follow some of these archi- archaeological digs and follow some of the scholarship and say, hey, what might God reveal now that we didn't know before that can completely shake things up? And that's exciting. And I think he does that on purpose, you know. So those are probably my top things that I find exciting and humbling and and wonderful about working here and being a part of it. Wow. Never thought about it that way, but it's so true that God just reveals things as the, at the right time, at the right place. And and yeah, I just, I find that, that was, that's fascinating the way that you put that. It just, and it just shows how big our God is that, you know, all throughout history, he is so much that he, those hidden mysteries that are, are for us, you know, and he's not hiding them from us. He's hiding them for us. And he wants us, he wants us to dig deeper and to find those things. Mm-hmm. And when we find those things, it just reveals more of himself, more of himself. And so it's just amazing to see, you know, this God who is over everything and in everything and through everything is kind of appointed to certain times to continue to give uh, revelation and depth of himself to his people. So, wow. Amazing. Wow. So how can people find more about uh, the Museum of the Bible? Where can they connect with with you, with the, with the museum? And where can they find uh, more information about some of the traveling presentations that the museum does? So we have a website, and you can Google Museum of the Bible. It's the top hit that you find, museumofthebible.org, and that has everything that you'd want to know on there. We have information on all of our permanent exhibitions that are on display all the time. We have a listing of our temporary exhibitions and when those will be up and open and closing. We also have a collections website, which can lead you to, we are constantly adding more and more of our collections digitally onto this website. And you can go through and actually scroll through our manuscripts and letters and things like that. And it has descriptions from our curators that write all of those. So I encourage you to go look at that. And then we also have a lot of digital content that not not everyone's aware of. We have our own podcast that's done with our chief curator, Jeff Cloa who he interviews people that come through the museum all the time. We also have videos from many of our curators and others that explain a little bit more about our collection and some of the artifacts and the nuances of the history of the Bible as well. So we encourage you to go look at that mu- that website for our museum. And if you're in D.C. in the area, we're worth coming to. So come see us. Absolutely. I think that'll be on the, the next on the agenda for the next trip. So. Amy, thanks so much for sharing your heart and just, you know, just how God's working in your life through being there at the museum. And thank you for so much for sharing so much about the museum today. Thank it's you. been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure.